Okay, we are going to make a start. So for those of you who uh, are not regularly with us, or you've never been in the room before, we are doing a little teaching series out of the book of Luke, so one of the Gospels, and we're about three weeks in, I think, and uh, I guess in just in a short summary, what we've seen so far, we've picked it up from kind of Luke 3 onwards, that Jesus is the kingdom bringer, he is the king who's coming, he's not the king the Israelites are expecting, the Jewish nation are looking and longing for a Messiah, the scriptures foretold that one would come. They are looking for a king, but he is not the one that they anticipate because his kingdom is a different type of kingdom to the ones that we think of humanly, of what power looks like, of what territory looks like, of what advance looks like. And in Luke 4, you know, we see Jesus reading Isaiah 61 and announcing, if you like, this is what he has come to do. We've been through Luke 4 and a little bit Luke 5, and now we're in Luke 6. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 6. And we're going to look at, if, if you're familiar with the Bible, which you may be, you may not be, but this is quite a famous passage, but it's also actually very confusing, I think. It's not easy to understand. And what we get in Luke 6 is similar, very similar to what you get in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so it's shorter, it's slightly different, but it's an account of the same sermon that Jesus preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew 6. So we're going to read uh, Luke 6, and it says this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. You keep getting this thing where Jesus seems to know what people are thinking. And he said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand up in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when the morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he had designated as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. 
Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word and um, we just want to ask you by your Holy Spirit to come and speak to us as we look at these passages, as we kind of wrestle a little bit with it. We wonder what these words sometimes mean. And um, Father, I just want to pray that what you want to say, we would hear it in our hearts today. And you would find us as good soil. Your, the seed of your kingdom would take root in our hearts and bear fruit, I pray. Amen. So, obviously in this section, there's a lot there. We're not going to preach through the whole thing, but just, just to kind of pick up on some of the things that are happening. You see in this section, amongst other things, Jesus withdrawing and praying. It says he goes up into a mountainside and comes down from the mountain and he says chooses the twelve. He gathers the disciples and chooses 12. And 12 is a significant number, if you know the Bible at all, because obviously the people of Israel had 12 tribes. So Jesus chooses 12 disciples. And what you see there is another hint about the fact that Jesus is mirroring the story of Israel in the Old Testament. So if you read through what happens with Jesus, you'll find that just as the people of Israel got out of Egypt, went through the waters, so Jesus goes through the waters of baptism. He goes through the people of Israel spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. He's mirroring the people of Israel. And just as the law is given at Sinai to the people of Israel, Jesus, in Matthew now in Luke, you find him coming from a mountain, bringing a law, bringing his new teaching. So there is a, a mirroring or an echoing, if you like, of the Old Testament into the, into the New Testament. And Jesus is in many ways saying, I am the fulfillment of all of Israel's history And what Israel could never do for itself, I am coming to do. So you see this very intentional, specific mirroring of what was in the Old Testament now being played out in Jesus' life. And Jesus therefore comes, brings his disciples and gathers 12. Why does he gather 12? Well, because the 12 tribes made up the people of Israel. What is he doing? He's saying, I'm gathering my disciples, but effectively I am forming a new people. That's what he's doing. He's beginning to form the nucleus of a whole new people. And you read through the New Testament, you'll find Paul and others going, now this is a new people, Jew and Gentile people from all backgrounds are forming a new, one new man in Christ. Well, that's what happens, starts here, right? The birthplace of the church, you could argue, is at Pentecost. But Jesus is beginning to gather a whole new people. And we are a church that has gathered from all over the world, so different ones of us will have a slightly different perspective on this. But if you've grown up in the West, like me, the West is flooded by secular values. And Western Christianity is flooded by secular... You know, we don't even realise that we live in it, but we do. So we live in the values of materialism, consumerism, individualism, are the huge values of Western culture. And what that means is that totally floods into our expectation of faith, and our expectation of church. And because of those things, we think of faith being something, it's me and Jesus as an individual. I come to Jesus to get what I need because I'm a consumer, and church is a place I attend. I come basically to get what I need for me, and then I go. And that's not a comment on our church. That's just a comment on all of us. That's, that's absolutely has kind of got into my system. That's the way we view the world because we are individuals, consumers, we come and get what we can get. And it's flooded our feelings about, about faith. 
But actually what you'll see here is that faith is never about what I come and get. Faith is about surrendering and laying my life down and being born again into a people. Faith is ne- it's always entered individually, but it's always existed in corporately. So there's no such thing in the Bible as Christians who are not connected to a church. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It happens all over the world in the West, doesn't it? All over the world. But in the Bible, it, do- it just doesn't exist as a concept. Christians are people who follow Jesus together in a church, in a local expression. So I would encourage all of you to find a church, this one or another one, find a church. Because that is where faith plays out. Jesus gathers 12 because he is birthing a whole new people. And God is always after a people who bear his name amongst which he dwells. Which is why again and again throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you get again and again Jesus saying, when you gather together, I'm there. Just two or three of you, I'm there. The people of Israel, tabernacle in the desert, he goes, stick me right in the middle, build a tent. I'll be right in the center. He's not saying I only live in a tent. He is saying when the people are gathered, I'm there. That's what he's saying. So being part of a people is critical when it comes to faith. And Jesus is gathering a people. And Jesus is announcing himself as the fulfillment of all that Israel has been longing for. And it's interesting when you read this passage and you read it through, and I've read it a few times this week, (laughs) which I'm sure you're glad to know. It says two groups of people are there. It says a great crowd of his disciples and a large, a great crowd of people, a large crowd of disciples, verse 17, and a great crowd of people. And they have come, it says, to hear him and to be healed. And when I read those verses, I thought that is exactly why we are planting a church together, right? We are planting a church together for Christians to gather and grow and to be discipled and for people who do not know Jesus, who are far from home spiritually, to be able to come home to him, to be able to come and find out. It's not one or the other, it's both and. So we want Christians to come and grow and grow as disciples. That's what I want to do. And we want to do church and faith in such a way that people who are far from God can come and seek and find out. And it says the people are coming to hear him and to be healed. Both and. In other words, he goes, there is something about Jesus' words which bring life. You know, those, like, you know Peter says, you, you, know, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to leave? And there is something about teaching the Bible, understanding what Jesus says, that somehow connects with something inside us. It goes, yeah, I want that. In Romans, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something about change and transformation comes from hearing the words of Jesus. So as a church, we're going to go, okay, we're going to teach the Bible. We're going to read what it says. We're going to try and understand it as best as we can. We'll be humble about it because the truth is, all of us, no matter how many scholars we read, you know, we, we understand in part. But we're going to look at the Bible because we believe God has, these are the words of life. God has something to say to us about how life is. But also, it says, they came to hear him and be healed. In other words, there is an experience of the presence of God and the kingdom of God breaking in now. And again, it's right there in the Bible. And Jesus says, I am the kingdom bringer. So Luke 4 
is this manifestation. This is what I'm going to do. I've come to set the prisoners free, the captives free, all those things. And you see it again and again through the Gospels. That is exactly what he does. He teaches them and then he heals them. And when he heals them, when he touches them, when power breaks in, it is a sign of the kingdom. And we live, if you like, scholars would say we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. In other words, there will be a day when Jesus returns and we experience his presence and his power fully. There'll be no more tears, it says. Like completely new. Everything is made new. And that day is coming. But in Luke 4, Jesus says, I've come now. The kingdom of God is near you. I'm coming right now. In other words, something of that kingdom reign can be experienced right now. So when we pray for people and we pray for healing and if you've ever been involved in praying for healing, I've prayed for healing, and sometimes nothing's happened. Other times we've prayed for healing, and something really miraculous happens. What is happening in that moment is the kingdom that is going to come, something of the power of that kingdom is breaking in right now. So we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. That's why sometimes you know, we, we know we live in a decaying body and a decaying world, but we can experience something of his kingdom power invading now. And it says in Luke 6, all the people were coming because they wanted to hear him teach and they wanted to be healed. And power is coming out of him. Okay? So I was like, that's why, we do, that's why we're planning a church. Not because we think there's something special about us. Not because we don't think other churches in Rotterdam are great. We want to pray for them and bless that and be humble about our part to play. But because we believe he wants to teach us from his word and we want to experience and encounter something of his presence because in his presence there is power as well so even today I want to encourage you if you're sick here it'd be great to pray for you even if you've been prayed for before because it seems to me this is what Jesus does he teaches them and he heals them and we experience them now and they're not yet and interesting in here I think although it doesn't go into the details that means church can be a bit messy because it says they're healed and they're freed from demonic power. Now in the West, again, if, from different cultures, we probably have less of an issue with this, but in the West we have quite an issue with demonic power because it doesn't quite fit into our scientific mindset that there can be anything called a demonic power. It sounds like, if you've ever watched the film Ghostbusters, it sounds like Ghostbusters and it's a bit weird. And, but actually in the Bible, clearly there are demonic powers. And C.S. Lewis says, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis, he'll say there are two big errors to avoid when it comes to demonic power. One is to overemphasize it and talk about it everywhere. You know, I didn't get a parking space for my car. It's clearly a demonic power. No, it's not. It's just the car park was full, right? That's an overemphasis. But similarly, just assuming that everything you encounter, there's no demonic involvement, is also a similar error. Because Paul writes in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So if we like the Bible, then we have to actually accept what the Bible says, which is actually behind some struggle and challenge are demonic powers. They're not behind everything. They're not sovereign. They submit to the name of Jesus, but it is real. Spiritual warfare does happen. Primarily spiritual warfare for the Christian is about standing firm, by the way. If you read the Bible... It's not about binding strongholds all over the place. Jesus has come and has bound the strong man, it says in the Gospels. So the victory is won, but we have to live in the battle. And part of the battle is standing firm. So Jesus comes, he heals them, 
and he teaches them. And that's like, well, that's what we're going to try and do as a church. Amen? We're going to pray for people. We're going to do church in such a way that Christians can grow and unbelievers can find out. That's what we're about. And then he says these very, very famous words. And I want you to really listen to them. Okay? Really listen to them and think, honestly, try and check what is your reaction inside when you hear these words. Okay? Try and actually think, I I know it ought to be good, but try and actually listen to the words and think, what do I think of these words? Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. The word blessed means happy, deeply contented. So happy are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil. Sounds good. Everybody looking forward to this because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. These are incredibly famous words. They have been written about, debated about, taught on for centuries. But here's the thing. When I read these words, and I don't know what your reaction was, but when I read these words, the truth is they make virtually no sense whatsoever to me. It doesn't mean that I don't understand the, the words he's using. I, do, I get the sentences, right? I remember going to a lecture once by a theologian called Gordon Fee. You may or may not have heard of him. I heard a lecture, he spoke for about an hour and a half. I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I, I, literally, I was like... And afterwards, the second day, he'd gone, and it was just some of the other people left, some of the worship leaders who were gathered. And the next day, everyone was like, did you understand that? Everyone was like, no idea. Okay? He was just like on another planet. It was like, I have no... He's using words I've never heard of. I'm like, okay, I've got no... That's not what's happening on here. Jesus is using plain language, but he is communicating a way of thinking about our lives and the world that make absolutely no sense humanly. Okay? Because he's saying, basically, you're blessed, happy, deeply contented when you basically think of all the things that you spend most of your life trying to avoid. Most of us spend, we live in a world that is absolutely committed to avoiding poverty, hardship, sacrifice, discontentment, grief, rejection. What are the main values of the world? They are power, wealth, like being comforted, Uh, being included, fame, notoriety. You know, nowadays you can just be famous for being famous, which is a bit weird on social media, but people who are like, have no particular reason for being famous other than for some reason they're now famous. And and those are the big things. And we spend our entire life kind of like trying to avoid those things. We don't want poverty. We don't want sacrifice. we, We want comfort, all those things. And Jesus says, bless to you. And then he goes... And woe to you who are rich, who are well-fed, who are famous, who, and those of you who laugh. In other words, the things that we most want, the things that the world we, are, we live in that are committed to pursuing, that we are pretty much convinced if we get them will make us more contented, give us laughter and peace. Jesus says, actually, ultimately, are going to bring you weeping, 
lack, grieving, and no contentment. It makes utterly no sense to us. I don't know if it does to you. Yeah? Does it make sense? I don't know. But I read those words. Do you, do you, just, do you read them and kind of go, or do you just kind of like go on autopilot? Yeah, yeah, okay. It's the Beatitudes. I don't understand. Let's get to the next chapter. Let's get to the bit where you heal people again. That's much more straightforward. But you read this stuff and kind of go, what is going on? And I want to encourage you, when you read the Bible and you get to a point, you go, what is going on? Acknowledge the fact that it makes no sense to you. Don't read it like, well, I suppose I should understand it. Let's just, no, go. I don't get this. What is this about? You can bring your questions to it. What is Jesus doing? Well, uh, Tim Keller, who I listened to a little bit about this and read some stuff, I found hugely helpful when it came to this passage. And he talks about the fact that actually what Jesus is doing is he is comparing the values of the world to the values of the kingdom that he is ushering in. So if Luke 4, where he reads Isaiah 61, is basically his manifesto, this is what I'm here to do, in corporate terms, his vision statement or mission statement. Luke 6, he is saying, here are the things that are valued in my kingdom up against the things that are valued in the kingdom of the world. Because we can read these verses and we think, is Jesus describing, it's like four blessings and four woes. And if you read Matthew's account, there's a lot more. In fact, Matthew doesn't have the kind of the judgmental side of the woes. He just has the blessings. But here it's four and four. And you read them, you kind of go, Jesus is clearly describing eight different groups of people, right? Poor people and rejected people. I don't think that's what he's doing. Jesus is effectively describing two camps. One group of people and another group of people. One group of people who are going to experience blessing, one who are going to experience judgment. One set of values for one kingdom, one set of values for another kingdom. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, you'll find that he keeps doing this. He keeps going, there's two builders, there's two types of trees. He keeps kind of comparing one against another. And effectively, that is what it is like. You are either a follower of Jesus or you're not. Yep. Now, I know humanly there are seasons when we kind of seek God and we wonder and we're kind of edging towards faith. I totally get that. But actually, in the end, you either go, I'm giving my life to you, I'm following you, or I don't. Yeah. Now, we can be Christians and still hugely influenced by the world. We know that. We all are, I'm sure. But effectively, he's going, no, it's binary. And he's comparing one kingdom set of values to another kingdom set of values and in verse 20 to 23 jesus says this is the values of my kingdom and the verse next three verses 24 to 26 jesus describes the kingdom of the world and when it comes to the world what we see is what is valued and this is what you see in these verses what is valued is power wealth comfort <coughs> laughter the word for laughter that he uses there is more like gloating Okay, so in our family, Trevor and Liz are staying with us these last, we played games last night and we tend to play games with our kids sometimes. And when people win those games, it has been known for people in our family not to win graciously. <coughs> yeah, yeah, there's a particular, I don't know, I don't know how this tradition started. There's a particular tradition that if you win the game, so we played these kind of card games, you're allowed to rub the head of all the people you've just beaten. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a form of gloating basically i've beaten you i've beaten you and people hate it but but when you win you still get a chance to do it okay and sometimes sarah refuses to let me do that to her 
but she will still do that to me, okay? And <laughs> so, and Jesus is saying, this is the, this is the values of the world. And we live in a world driven by those things. Power, wealth, comfort, fame, self-gratification. That's what we're aiming for. That's what our careers are all about getting more of. Right? We make that our goal. And Jesus is saying, he says basically, if you live that way, woe to you. In other words, the product eventually of living like that will lead you to weeping, exclusion, lack, not gain, discontent, not contentment. If you give your life to the pursuit of all those things, if you make that the driver, if you make that the goal, if you make more power, more money, more gratification, if more inclusion, more popularity, if you make that the thing that you go for in your life, Jesus is going, woe to you. There's a famous story in Luke 12, which I think is an amazing story where he says, he says, you're like a man who builds bigger and bigger and bigger barns. You keep building barns, you try and keep accumulating more wealth, and the entire Western world capitalism is built on this idea. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And if I accumulate a lot enough, I'm gonna be all right. You, you know, he says, he says, one day I'm gonna build this next barn and then I'll settle down and I'll enjoy life. And Jesus says, you're a fool. That is, you're a fool. If you buy that lie, it's a lie. It's not true. It's a myth. But it's a myth that our entire culture has caught up and agreed with. And so everything is built towards that. And Jesus goes, if you live your life this way, woe to you. This is going to deliver to you things that you never thought. Yes, there will be momentary satisfaction. But ultimately, that is going to lead you to weeping, to grieving, to lack. It's not going to lead you to any of the things that you most hope for. And humanly, we know that, actually, don't we? We, we already experience to some degree that riches and accumulation doesn't really quite give us what we hoped for. And you know that because when you get a pay rise, how many of us have ever had a pay rise? How many of us have ever found that that pay rise was quite enough? Yeah? You kind of do the sums and you still go, maybe a little bit more would be nice, a bit more. John Ortberg talks about the more monster that lives within us. Because you, it just doesn't deliver what it's advertising. It never quite gives you what you hoped for. If you make it all about power, you know ultimately you lose power. If you make it all about beauty, you know ultimately that fades. We can see it humanly that it doesn't quite do it. I used to play music and we used to, uh, in the UK they call it gigging. It's basically, you go out and you play in venues and stuff. And occasionally we were trying to make it, we would meet bands who had made it, who were now on the way down. You know, they had a record deal, they were famous once, and now they're not. And occasionally you would play, play in the same venue. They were always the most miserable people I'd ever met. Because the dream had just gone. Because if you make those things the thing that your life is built on, when you lose it, you don't just lose, oh, I lost that job, or I lost some money. You've lost everything, because that was everything. And Jesus is saying, you build your life that way, ultimately it doesn't lead you to contentment, it leads you to weeping. And yet we are so prone to get sucked straight into it. 
And Jesus goes, no, woe to you if you believe that. If you go that way. And Jesus is also saying cosmically, if you like, there will be weeping. There will be grief. There will be lost. In a sense, there will be judgment. Now, again, in the West, different cultures actually would be far more comfortable with this idea of judgment, that God is a judge. But in the West, people hate the idea of judgment. They hate the idea that there could be someone who can, can basically make a judgment on our lives. Because we want to be God. The whole thing is, no, 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 we don't need God because we're, we decide. But ironically, everybody in the West loves justice. We love the idea of justice, though. You know, in other words, wrongs should be righted. You know, so awful tyrants and dictators, people who, you know, abusers, people who misuse power, those people should be brought to justice, right? So if you said to people, do you believe in the idea of justice? They'll go, absolutely, yes. They just don't like the idea that there might be someone who might judge them. But you can't have justice without a judge. That's the great irony. So we love the idea of justice, but just don't bring it to me. Because I will decide for myself where I equate on the am I good enough or not scale. And in the West we hate the idea, but Jesus is very clear. Not only does it bring sadness in your life, but actually ultimately it brings cosmic sadness and weeping. And the Bible is very clear. There will be a day when God will judge the world. Jesus in Luke 4 stops short, as we saw a few weeks ago, of saying out of Isaiah 61, he talks about the year of the Lord's favour, and in Isaiah 61 it says, and the day of vengeance, judgment. And Jesus stops short. He doesn't say that because he's announcing favour. The open doors of the kingdom. No judgment yet. But there will be a day when Isaiah 61 is fulfilled and judgment will come. And it's not about how well did I live my life. It's like, did I surrender and did I come under the blood of Jesus? So he is saying, here's the kingdom of the world. And then he compares it, if you like, to the kingdom of, of God or his kingdom. And he, here, are the, here are the values of the kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, and they reject your name as evil, because the Son of Man, because of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how the ancestors treated the prophets. So if the if the values of the kingdom of the world is power, comfort, fame, notoriety, the values of the kingdom are weakness, brokenness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Now, let me tell you my understanding. Different people see this one differently, but let me just tell you my understanding. I, I don't think Jesus is teaching you should actively seek out poverty. Make your life becoming about becoming more poor or, or some kind of or actively seek out grief or weakness or actively seek out being excluded. I don't think it's about seeking those things. He's not promoting a form of asceticism, which is like all about self-denial. I don't think he's promoting a form of masochism, which is all about pain. But I think what he is saying is when the world experiences those things, when the world experiences poverty, 
or exclusion or grief. It is like they have lost everything because their entire world was built about having those things. Yeah? You ever go to a funeral for someone and it's full of people who have no faith, no Christian faith, they are often, often either full of completely weird denial that death has even happened. You know, there's no death. They're just looking in on us now. Bob's still watching us now. Bob's really happy now. And they tend to, in, the, in England, they tend to play, you know, I did it my way by Frank Sinatra. And it's all like, it's just like, what is that? Or it's completely, utterly hopeless. Because everything was about power, wealth, comfort. And now they've lost everything in one go. They've totally lost everything. What Jesus is not saying, seek those things out. It's really good if you're poor. What he's saying is, if you experience poverty, which we all will, or lack, or exclusion at times, or grief, or sorrow, and you can't go through life without experiencing some of that, it will not destroy you. It won't destroy you because your life isn't built on those things. Your life is not built on the accumulation of more wealth, or built on the accumulation of more comfort, or, or is dependent, your happiness is not dependent upon inclusion. And you recognize there will be grief. What he's saying is those things won't destroy you. But they destroy the world. That's why when businesses go down, you see kind of business execs sometimes taking their lives, tragically throwing themselves out of windows or taking an overdose because everything has gone, not just their job. Everything they've built their lives for has gone now, one go. And Jesus is saying, you're blessed because when you experience those things, they will not destroy you. Ultimately, none of those things, grief, Sadness, poverty cannot rob you ultimately. Blessed are you. And when he's saying the word blessed, he's not saying one day you will experience the blessing of that. Yeah, you will, but he's not actually saying that. You see, we read these words, at least from my background we do, we read them and think Jesus is talking about lots of different people. No, he's not. He's talking about two groups. And we go, Jesus is saying, it's going to be awful now as a Christian, but one day God's going to repay you in heaven. You ever heard that kind of teaching? (laughs) It's like grit your teeth kind of Christianity. Being a Christian is basically awful because it's about having no fun. It's about saying no to all the nice stuff, but it's going to be okay one day, like, because God's going to go, well done for living a terrible life, but I'm going to, I'm going to reward you one day. Big tick. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay. Partly you can tell that because Jesus doesn't teach that in the rest of the gospels. In John 10, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life in all its fullness That does not mean that there isn't sacrifice and denial and pain and storms. There is. But also you can tell that because in this passage, in the Hebrew, which Jesus would have spoken, but in the Greek, where it's translated in Luke, he's using a present tense. So he's not saying, one day you'll be blessed. He's saying, right now you are blessed. Right now. Because right now your life is not built on the need to have those things. You know that contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment does not come from the accumulation of those things. So therefore, you can walk through life confidently. You can experience good and bad, pain and accumulation, grief and wonderful days. You will be able to walk through them. And it's not that they won't be hard, but you will be able to walk through them and they will not destroy you. You are blessed because it's going to destroy the world. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't have hope, you will build your lives on things that ultimately will just crumble. That's why Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's two builders. 
One builds on rock, one builds on sand. What happens to the sand one? It crumbles. That's what happens. And Jesus says, woe to you if you build like that. But if you build like this, it prevails. It doesn't mean there aren't storms. Both, in both those sto- houses, storms come, right? So we're not into unreality. We're not into weirdness. Christians never have a t- bad time. Of course they do. Of course we go through tough stuff. We go through sickness, grief, loss, pain, hardship. We go, Paul keeps going on about it. He, he says, like, I've been shipwrecked and shipwrecked and I've lost. It's not that we don't go through storms. It's just that at the end, it can't rob you. Woe to you if you live like that. If you, if you buy into the lie, Jesus is going, woe to you. But if you understand the truth, it's going to set you free. Because it can't rob you. Because your, heart, your life's not built on it. That's what it's saying. So he's not saying, actively seek out being poor economically. That's not what he's saying. He talks a lot about being generous, right? <laughs> Which is why we encourage people to give, because actually it's part of discipleship. It, it de, it's like a detoxing of our need to have more money, part of giving. It's an opportunity to grow, basically. So if you don't give financially, and this is not, you must give to our church, but if you don't give financially somewhere, basically what you're doing is suffocating your ability to grow. Because it's saying to him, I'm not going to trust you about money. I'll trust you for forgiveness, but not for money. And Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I want your whole life. Not a part of your life. You have to trust me entirely. Only two choices. This kingdom or this kingdom. This kind of builder or this kind of builder. This kind of tree or this kind of tree. So Jesus is not saying, one day you'll experience all the good stuff, but in this life you're going to have to commit yourself to a terrible type of lifestyle. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, give your life to me, build on a different foundation. And you will be able to experience all those things and they will not destroy you. you will, your house will stand. You will prevail. It's going to be all right, in other words. Ultimately, it's going to be right. You are perfectly safe. And that is why Paul can write in Philippians, these famous, famous words in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need. It should come up on screen. I know what it is to have plenty. And then these incredible words. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So Paul's going, I know what it's like to have more than enough. And I also know what it's like to have not enough. He's not saying not having enough is better. He's saying you're going to go through seasons of both. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I think that is the most challenging verse to Western culture that I can think of. Because we live in an incredibly discontented world. All advertising is built on the idea of making you feel more discontented. I must have that. If I get that, I'll be really happy. That's what it's built on. See that car? Look, it's amazing. It's kind of shiny. I need that shiny car. Or those candles at Ikea. I need more candles. Or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, rarely do I go to Ikea and not feel the need for more candles. <laughs> you should listen to my entire sermon, Sarah. I think there's more just like... <laughs> so Paul says, 
I've learned there's a secret to how to live. And it's something we learn. So quickly, last couple of minutes. How do we do this? <laughs> Just two minutes, but there we go. How do you live according to the values of the kingdom? So what, what, does, Jesus, what does Paul say here in Philippians 4? Paul says, I've learned the secret to do this through him who gives me strength. So Paul doesn't just, I've learned a little secret on my own. He's going, no, no, I've learned somehow that there is power through him who gives me strength. What happens to Jesus? Jesus experiences loss, poverty, sacrifice, grief, exclusion. Not just from the Pharisees. Ultimately, Jesus experiences rejection by his father, even his father on the cross. That's what happens. Jesus walks through all those things. So there's an example of Jesus. But just the example alone is not enough. Because if Jesus was just an example, he's just a moral person for whom we have to try and live up to. And that will just crush you if you just try to follow his example. Because you and I are not able to follow that example. But actually, Paul says, in Ephesians and in Romans, he says, the same power that was at work in Jesus, raising him from the dead, is now at work in me. So Jesus is an example, but Jesus, through Jesus' death and resurrection, now the same power is available to me. His spirit is available to me. How does Paul live a life in line with the kingdom values that Jesus talks about in Luke 6? Through the power of the spirit operating in his life. How do you access the power of the spirit? By surrendering your life again and again and again. We haven't got time to go into it, but it's interesting. The first thing Jesus says in Luke 6 and Matthew about the Beatitudes is, is blessed are you who are poor. Scholars argue about that phrase. But basically, the easiest way I think to understand it is talking about the brokenhearted. Not of which the economically poor are often the case. Think about the time in your life when you have most surrendered to God. I can guarantee you it was a moment when you felt most needy most aware of your lack, most aware of your desperate need for his intervention, most aware of your inability to control the circumstances of your life. Illness, grief, a loss of job, lack of opportunities. Those are the moments where we say to him, God, I need you. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you are broken in your spirit. Psalm 51, what is a sacrifice that pleases God? A broken and contrite heart. Why? Because a broken heart leads to a surrendered heart. And when we come to a surrendered place, that is when we allow him access to us. And Paul goes, I've learned the secret. If I give him access to my life, the power that was at work in Jesus is at work in me. And I find that I can be content in lack and in plenty because I'm not building my life on it. I'm building my life on the rock and I'm going to trust him. Brokenness leads to surrender. And through surrender, we can experience his presence, his power, and we can hear his words, and we can find his healing. So I'd love us just to pray. I'm sorry, that's been a little long, but I hope you felt, you felt God speak. But let's just stand, and I'd love us to pray. Well, you can sit if you like. You don't have to.